to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Art Laws is a podcast that explores cultural outlaws, both present and past, from artists and filmmakers to musicians and writers. For over 20 years, Casey Spooner has pushed boundaries at the intersection of art, spectacle, and entertainment. When he first joined forces with his art school friend, Warren Fisher, in 1998, little did they know their multimedia project, Fisher Spooner, would capture the attention of the world. Making their debut at Nice Village Starbucks, this outsized glam duo soon found themselves topping the charts and accepting invitations to world-renowned galleries and museums like the Guggenheim, Pompidou, and MoMA. In spite of great commercial success, Casey has held firm to his early aim to make the avant-garde more accessible. Casey has always been a visionary artist whose work moves fluidly between music, film, photography, performance, and design. Now Spooner's emerging as a solo artist with a new body of multimedia work entitled Spooner Hollywood. Inspired by the pioneers of early filmmaking, Spooner Hollywood is a conceptual artist studio with an eye towards the future, his mission being to build an empowered, independent, and financially self-sufficient creative class. And like everything else he does, he is steps ahead of the art and music worlds. We welcome Casey Spooner to Art Laws. All right, so I want to start by talking about the bootleg CDs from 1999. Wow. Um, Yes, and there's a reason why. These were created for Fisher Spooner's first museum show, which was at PS1 in New York. And there was this whole elaborate backstory about how these came to be involving thieves and stolen recordings. And this whole uh-huh. story was fabricated. But I think it's one of the earliest examples of this fantasy and myth making that everything as you as an artist has been exploring throughout your career. So can we just start off by you telling us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I don't remember why or how we got the idea, but one of our earliest performances, I had met a guy who worked at a CD factory. And so we burned, I think there are four songs on the bootleg. I can't remember. And some of the songs were never actually released beyond the bootleg. Right. Well, Emerge emerges on there, which is the big single, yeah. single. Yeah. Yeah, Emerge is on there, and I think Turn On is on there, and I think Natural Disaster is on there, and then I think that might be it. And so, yeah, we made a hundred of them, and then we signed and numbered them and sold them, and yeah, you're right. I mean, we made up this crazy story about how someone had leaked the songs, and they had produced the CDs and we bought the CDs off of them and then resold them. That was also at a time when like bootleg culture was a really interesting part of underground music because there were a lot of people doing these mashups and they would release them on unmarked CDs. Mm-hmm. And so they weren't legal because there were these mashups, obviously, of like copywritten material, but People like Too Many DJs were making incredible songs, layering totally different genres. And I remember going to Colette in Paris and asking Sarah, you know, I was like, where do you get these CDs from? And she basically was like, look, people come in with suitcases, we pay them cash. So it was this very kind of uh, criminal music scene 
And there was also a history that I had learned that I didn't know this that were called white labels. And a lot of DJs would make songs or make mixes. And in order to not have to deal with copyright, and none of these things were going to make a lot of money. It was just because people wanted the creative to exist. And people would release white labels and give them away with also unlicensed or uncleared audio. I love that that you were creating, this was before you had anything out in terms of records, and you had created this record that seemingly had people stealing it because it was so desirable. But it, to me, it's uh-huh. interesting because here you were right at the beginning of this sort of project that was just starting and you were creating a myth already, which I think was pretty fascinating. Yeah. And also we would intentionally make shows difficult to get into and limit the capacity. And we would do performances where each set, like if we were doing I always love doing endurance-based and sort of site-specific performance. And so when we would do different shows, we would do multiple sets, multiple audiences, and we would change the costumes, change the special effects, and change the set list so that if one person saw one show, the next person didn't see the same show, so that everyone was always talking about something and everyone was always kind of missing something. You created this mystique of exclusivity sounds like a little bit. Yeah, it was exclusive, but it was also very accessible. I would happily add as many shows as we had to, to get every, you know, we would extend or perform for eight hours until everyone had a chance to see something. So I think there was a moment where the exclusivity thing kind of backfired on us was when we did a performance at Deitch Projects in 2002 And the show was free. There were multiple sets that night. And I think the maximum capacity we could get in was around like 1,500 to 2,000 people over the period of that night. And we had 10,000 RSVPs. Wow. And so we had like 8,000 people. We had a majority of people that were angry versus the amount of people that got in. And that was the one time that I felt like that system didn't work so well. So let's take it back for a second. You and Warren Fisher first met as students at the Art Institute of Chicago. What drew you guys together? Um, We had a similar love for production and production value. And I'd say for an aesthetic that was about the power of production. Interesting. So you were each studying what at the Art Institute at the time? I started as a painter, and then I fell into performance art, experimental theater, and then that slid into video art. So by the end, my thesis projects that I showed were performance and video. It's interesting to me that you went from painting to performance art. What was it about performance art that drew you? I'd had some experience in high school doing a little bit of high school theater. And then when I was a freshman in college, I spent a lot of time around a lot of musicians. But the turning point, I think, was, I mean, I was always interested in Spalding Gray and Grace Jones, Laurie Anderson. So there was an interest in performance art. But when I got to the Art Institute, it was the first time there was an actual performance art program. And my painting teachers said that the best part about my paintings were when I talked about them. So (laughs) 
it was actually my painting teachers that pushed me into performance. That's so interesting. Tell us about Dorica. I was just about to say that was the next step is that while I was in art school studying painting and my art teachers, my painting professors were pushing me towards performance, I went on tour as a merch salesman for a friend of mine's band one summer. And one of the guys in one of the bands knew a theater director that lived in Chicago. And they introduced us and I went and I auditioned and I joined Dorica. I think it was in the summer of 1990. Mm -hmm. Tell us more what that was like and what that was all about. Well, it was really my very intensive education in avant-garde and experimental theater. And I worked a lot. I worked with nine years with Erica Yeomans, who was the director for Dorica. She really introduced me. She had studied at ETW at the Experimental Theater Wing at NYU. So she knew all the kind of cool New York performance companies. And I got a kind of hands-on education about performance through working with her and the company. Each production was like very unique and very conceptual and have very specific and kind of unusual process. The first show that I did was called Satellite Babushka, I think. And it was based on Tarkovsky and Chekhov. And the first scene that we did, we did it all in Russian. So I learned all the dialogue in Russian. We performed the first scene in Russian and then we backed up and then we redid the same scene in English. And Mm -hmm. then there was another production that was one I feel like I worked on the longest, which was called The Forgery. And just to give you a general sense of like what the process would be like, it was a play about art theft. But the way we built the show was we workshopped it and we would watch noir films. We would pull scenes from noir films that we liked. We would pull gestures from noir films. So we kind of created a library of actions. And then we would pull all the dialogue from pulp novels and from noir films. And we would collage all those things together. So it was this very meta-layered challenging, intensive writing process where we basically wrote our characters, wrote the scripts. And then the narrative within all of that was about forgery and art theft. So that just kind of a general example of how the performance was theater and driven and conceptual in these kind of holistic approach. Yeah, kind of integrative. Yeah. And then my dream was always to work with the Wooster group. And I love Spalding Gray. And I had seen Brace Up when I was 19. And, you know, I thought it was the most glamorous and exciting theater company in the world. We're definitely going to get to Wooster group, but I guess we should start in New York in 1998 when you officially formed Fisher Spooner with Warren. And your first performance was at a Starbucks on Astor Place. Can you tell us about how that came to be? Uh huh. Well, my good friend Kelly Kuvo, who I call the Queen of the Underground, had befriended these two students that worked at Starbucks, and they were curating these Friday night salon poetry reading 
performances. And at that time, I was in another band called Sweet Thunder with Kelly Kubo, which was actually the first band that I was in. And then Kelly organized kind of a showcase for Sweet Thunder at Starbucks. And everybody in uh, Sweet Thunder had other bands and other side projects. And so at that time, Warren and I had been working on a soundtrack for a film. And then that soundtrack turned into a song based on a story about me with an Indian cab driver. And we took that story and turned it into a song that was like a one song performance we did during the Sweet Thunder showcase. I know what the song's about, but I'm not sure if Robin does. Can you tell us the origin? It's kind of a funny story. Oh, it's just a crazy story about how, you know, like, wow, it's like such a different world now. Um, <laughs> in New York, it's like the cab drivers would like hang out at gay bars and pick up guys to take them home and then be like kind of like closeted cab drivers that would always hitting on you. I'm actually kind of sad because I realized now no cab driver hits on me anymore <laughs> and I don't take cabs as much. And so the dynamic is so different. So anyway, this cab driver tried to pick me up. And I translated that story into a song. I sang it from the point of view of the cab driver, which would be completely offensive. And thank <laughs> God it's not recorded. So we did that one song performance. And the thing that was coolest about it was that I was really inspired by this Indian film called Dil Tapago High, which I'm probably saying completely wrong, but it was this amazing Indian film and I discovered the film because I bought the soundtrack on cassette at, I love to go to like the Indian delis. One I would go to was called Pak Punjab. Get samosas and like amazing Indian food. And I just asked the guy behind the counter, I was like, you know, what's a cool, they would have all these crazy soundtracks and cassettes. And I was like, what's the best cassette? And he just picked a cassette for me. And then I started listening to it. The music was incredible. It had this amazing theme song with whistling in it. And so it was like Lee Hazelwood meets like Vegas meets India. And wow. yeah, and I couldn't stop listening to the soundtrack. And then I had the song. And so I kind of used the Indian motif and merged it with the song. And I lifted some of the melody. And uh, it wasn't until much later, actually, after we had done the song and done the performance, that I finally got a copy of the movie. And the movie, the staging was very similar to early Fisher Spooner kind of mega Vegas pop aesthetic. So mm. there was some kind of like weird symbiosis between me <laughs> and this Indian film. And it's very weird. Yeah. And meeting the driver and everything that. All of it. But one of the things that's interesting about the performance was that because of my experience in experimental theater, I had kind of learned all these different, I would say, advanced techniques to create a suspension of disbelief. And there were ways to kind of like create confusion about what was intentional and what was accidental as a way to draw people into contemporary theater. And who was the character and who was the person and what was an accident and what wasn't. And so I built into the song a staged mistake so that the song would start and then there would be a problem and then the song would start over. And the first time we performed the song, 
there was a real problem. And so we had to start over and then we started over and then I did the fake problem and people were completely like totally in awe because they had seen me do a fake mistake, then have a real mistake, then start over, do the fake mistake again and then continue. (laughs) So people were really baffled as to like what was intentional, what was accidental. So anyway, that kind of performance really set like, it was a great, for me, what I liked is I've been working in very obtuse, difficult theater for about a decade. And the way I always described it is it felt like the work I was doing in experimental performance, it was like there was a wall between me and the audience and there would be these kind of windows or cracks or these like fissures where people could possibly penetrate and connect to what was happening on stage with a lot of attention and a lot of effort. And then when I started doing music, it was so fun because it was such an easy format that wasn't intimidating and people felt that they could immediately engage and connect. And it felt like it was just an easier format for me to tell stories and to just connect to an audience. That was when I really got excited about kind of playing the part of a pop star. It's interesting to me, though, the Starbucks, because you would never see that now in terms of people performing there. Was there something, was there a reason why Starbucks was chosen? Was there a political statement? No, no, no. Oh, no. It was just really like, it was Kelly's idea, honestly. And she was the one who organized the whole thing. And it was like a three hour showcase, you know, where there were, I think there were like 10 people in Sweet Thunder. And the way that band was set up is it was super democratic. And basically each person, the band, would write a song and they would sort of direct everyone, all the other musicians as to what they wanted to do for their song. Right. And so it was more like a collective. And then because there were so many people and they all had different projects, and then there were other people that were invited to do different performances. I mean, there was a puppet show, there was a poetry reading. It was a very like long, Andrew WK performed his first performance it was kind of like a long, crazy, weird performance festival that happened in the Starbucks. And it was just literally because I can almost remember the two guys who organized it. It was I remember one guy's name was David Muldoon. And I can't remember the other guy's name. But there were just these two guys and they would just there was a little teeny stage in the Astro Plate Starbucks and That's so um, wild. It must have been so yeah. much fun. And fun for the people who came upon it suddenly. And well, yeah, that was the thing that was exciting for me is that I was performing in these small experimental theaters with very limited audiences. And then all of a sudden we were doing crazy radical performance art in public space. Yeah. So it was like, and it wasn't even, you know, it was people coming to get coffee. Incredible. Well, yeah. after this performance, something really interesting happened. Major art world figures like Gavin Brown and Jeffrey Deitch invited you to perform in their spaces. So you were invited to perform in museums around the world, et cetera. So this was a big shift. Why do you think the art world embraced you so quickly? I had had relationships and connections with the art world because I had gone to art school. And first performance we did in a gallery was, uh, oh my God, what was her name? There was a a really cool performance artist 
who organized a series of shows at Jack Tilton in Soho. And that was our first gallery performance was at Jack Tilton's. And then we were doing all of our photography with Roe Etheridge, and he had a relationship with the director of Gavin Brown's Enterprise. And Rick Rittiravenesia had built a recreation of his apartment in the gallery one summer. I think it was the summer of 99. And we were invited to perform in that. And so Gavin saw that performance. And that was an endurance, immersive performance. So then it was after that performance that Gavin then invited us to do a show. But we also had, maybe it was from that summer show at Gavin's, then I developed a relationship with Klaus Biesenbach who later invited us to go and perform in uh, Berlin at Kunstwerker. So there was just kind of, I don't know, I, there were just these relationships that came about very organically. And it was kind of the early, I don't want to say like a, rena- it was kind of an early renaissance of performance art and spectacle. Like that just wasn't really part of the art world yet. So people got were really you- seduced and excited by that. Were you looking at people like Marina Abramovich in terms of like, you know, your early performances were so extreme. You were really pushing your body. You were working hours and hours at a time for days in claustrophobic spaces. Who were you looking at or what were you trying to accomplish with these sort of extreme performances? I would say the only person that I felt like a similar interest in was Matthew Barney, but he was doing stuff that was more visual and more for camera. I don't know. I mean, it was just sort of an amalgam of all my interests from like being at punk shows in Georgia as a kid, being in Chicago for like house music and experiencing music in those kind of spaces and experiencing live performance for a decade in all those forms from dance music to punk rock to experimental theater. And then it was just, I think, a process of learning and finding what I enjoyed doing as a performer. The first time we got paid to do anything is we did a performance for a cosmetics company called Tony and Tina, and they gave us $3,000. And we built a vitrine in the middle of the office for a Christmas party. I can't remember what, it was some kind of party. And the vitrine, we set it up as kind of like a the dressing room. So everyone, all the performers were getting dressed and having their hair and makeup done in the middle of the party in a vitrine. And then at a certain point, we cleared everything out and then the vitrine became a stage. And so we performed behind glass in the middle of the room, also rotating the axis of the performance. So every time a song would start, we would change the directions. There was no proscenium and there was no one way it was kind of a pop show as sculpture right so i don't know i wasn't i mean i love marina's work and we're fans of each other's stuff but it wasn't my work in general is always kind of dealing with i think a very american love-hate relationship with show business interesting because it also seems like sometimes you have dada roots and I was curious if, because you did go to art school, if that comes into play at all. I mean, I love the costumes and I love the staging. I don't really know what those performances were like because there's no real documentation. So I can't really say one way or the other, but I mean, I love the things that I've seen. Amazing costumes in Madrid at the Reina Sofia. They have some of the Dada costumes and a lot of the Dada drawings. Mm Mm-hmm. 
but I don't really know. There is sort of always, I think, been like Duchamp dressed as Rose de la Vie. And there's always been, I think, a history of performance and theater commingling with the arts. But it's something that's never been able to really be commodified well or documented clearly up until, I would say, just within the past couple of decades. Mm -hmm. From the start, your shows were extremely elaborate and incorporated pop, entertainment, fashion, video, dance, photography, and design. I mean, sometimes all at once. So the common thread, though, seems to be electronic music. So I'm curious, why electronic music? That was really Warren's choice initially. He went to other music and would just buy hundreds of CDs and listen to as much stuff as possible. And for whatever reason, he latched on to early electro. And I always liked that kind of music anyway. So he kind of set the template, I would say, on that. And then I really liked it because it was easy to perform because we just could play back a CD and we didn't have to deal with bands and gear and loading in and loading out. And you didn't have to rehearse musicians. So it gave me the opportunity to really focus on creating images with dancers and costumes and lighting and, and all that kind of stuff. So also, I just like electronic music. You talk about Starbucks being sort of this performing at Starbucks, this way of reaching the masses. And I wonder, was electronic music a way that would reach a bigger audience for what you were trying to accomplish? Not at the time. Like in 98, electronic music was not cool. I mean, people were not. No, 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 not really. I mean, the most I would say in 98, the sound was like air. So it was like Moon Safari was the big album or it was. Moby's play. Right. Uh, so it was more European and it was more ambient or chill. It wasn't high energy. It wasn't, there was no EDM yet. And there weren't these electronic music festivals. I mean, the first time that we performed at Coachella, it was a really nerve wracking experience because we were on one of the big stages and we weren't a band. And so there was a lot of speculation that the show was going to fail because they were like, how can you go on to like one of these main stages and just have dancers and lights and play electronic music? And Mm -hmm. so uh, there was a ton of anxiety around that because mostly we've been doing our shows in Europe and nightclubs. Mm -hmm. So now you go to music festivals and, you know, there's main stages and we weren't in the era of the superstar DJ in 98, not on main stages, not in music festivals. There weren't music festivals as we know them today, and there was no EDM. It was just not popular. But you you were being chased by major record labels at that time. Like I guess maybe you signed with EMI and Capital, but what was it about that moment that they decided that you would be this art group out of New York would be something that the rest of the world would want to see, would want to listen to? What was changing in the wind, I'd want to ask? Does that make sense? Yeah, I honestly, I don't know. It was bizarre because I had always wanted to be a gallery represented working performance artist. And when we got to around 2002, we worked for Gavin Brown for a period. We did a lot of big shows with him that were very successful. 
And then I met Jeffrey Deitch. He expressed his interest. So then we moved over to Jeffrey because he was very into street culture. He was into pop. He was into spectacle. So we partnered with Jeffrey. But simultaneous to that, and I was really happy with my relationship with Jeffrey because we met and I was like, look, I need a studio space. I need a stipend. I want this show. I need this kind of budget. I need this kind of support. And basically he was like, no problem. You got it. So I was basically on salary with the gallery. I had a 4,000 square foot studio space. I had an assistant and I was working every day, only making art. And that would mean that I would have rehearsals in the afternoon with dancers. I would leave, I would go to the recording studio. I'd work on music. And then in the mornings I would do kind of business. So I would kind of do all the administrative stuff until noon or one. Then I would go rehearse dance and then I would go work on music. So I was kind of happy. And then labels started chasing us. And I don't really know what the thing was that clicked it from the underground to make, you know what it was really what happened is Napster happened. And we had been in New York producing and kind of packaging ourselves not necessarily with the intent to be absorbed into mainstream entertainment, but we had done photography. We had made music videos, graphic design, packaging multiple times, like reinvented ourselves every year. We were kind of rebuilding and re-releasing. And the workflow was, it was more of a fine artist, less of a band because we would work on a song, then we would work on a performance, then we would work on a film, then work on a photograph. Then we would work on another song, then I would make a costume, then we'd make a photograph, then we'd do performance of that. Then we would add another bit of film. So it was very cumulative and, again, kind of holistic. And mm-hmm. then after a period of time, we had kind of built up just a wealth of material, and then Napster happened and the internet exploded and basically all the creative we had done just got sucked up online and all of a sudden went international and then i cannot remember how, oh we did a performance at another arts event there was a dj there who knew dj hell he released a white label or a very limited 12 inch emerge and turn on on vinyl a thousand copies he gave that vinyl to dj hell And DJ Hell invited us to Berlin to perform at the coolest club in town called VMF at the best part of time of year called Love Parade. And we did that performance in, I think that was also the summer of 99, or maybe it was the summer of 2000. So there was sort of this thing that would happen is that people would be interested in the music and then we would do a performance and then they would be like, holy shit, we want this group. So I think that was the consistent thing that happened. Like we get invited to Gavin's, we do a performance. He'd be like, okay, you get a show. Then we went to Berlin to do a performance for DJ Hell. After we did the performance, he was like, oh my God, I'm releasing the whole album. And so it just kind of kept growing when people would experience the combination of the music and performance and film and photography. And they would kind of all of a sudden realize how all-encompassing and thorough the creative was, then people would want to participate. That's great. 
Will you go from this DIY operation to becoming these major recording artists? Did this change the dynamic between you and Warren at all? It was awful. It was absolutely awful. It was a nightmare. It was the worst thing that could have ever happened. And there's no way I could prepare for it. Because basically, it kind of, everything imploded because the art world felt very threatened and alienated, threatened by entertainment. And then the entertainment business felt very alienated from the art world. They felt like someone was tricking them. Everything had ulterior motives. They didn't know what was authentic. If there was any kind of humor in it, they felt it, they could. There was no sense of like, I don't know. It was just a really bad relationship. And the music world and the art world and the entertainment business just at that time were completely not compatible. And I could not get the leaders, the executives, I could not get them to connect. I couldn't get them to communicate. I couldn't get them to sit down together. I couldn't get them to join forces. I couldn't get them to share budgets. I couldn't get them to share schedules. So I was really trying to do this kind of, in a weird way, post-pop idea where we've lived through Warhol and Warhol taking the vernacular of American culture and turning it into fine art. And then that reverberates through all of culture all the way through to Jeff Koons. But I was like, okay, aren't we at the point where it's like, we can kind of have a dialogue that moves between these worlds and between these businesses where it doesn't have to be elitist, only be elitist. And it doesn't have to only be populists. Like, can't we all just kind of share these resources and make stuff that can function where there are artistic elements that fit the format of galleries and theaters and nightclubs. And there are other things that fit the format of television and radio and all that can be one big, amazing, creative body of work. And it can all be unified. It can all have integrity. It can all be exciting and it can all be interesting. And that was not the case. Well, you were certainly ahead of the times. And I think in a lot of ways, there's a lot of money at stake when you get involved with major labels. So did you feel like you had to pick a side, you had to go with the label and change your dynamic in any way because of that? Um, Well, it was like complicated. It's hard to say because I think Warren's dream, he's a musician. So his dream was to be on a major label and to be in this position of like musical success. And it was not my dream and I didn't really care. And what was your dream? To do what I said, just kind of to make perform, to be more like Grace Jones. Yeah. I mean, it was like a hybrid between like Grace Jones and Spalding Gray, maybe, but mostly, you know, Grace Jones. And Warren's fantasies were more rock and roll. So he wanted to like work in studios. And then all of a sudden it was like, we were bringing in musicians and other producers. And I don't know, it was like the process just kind of unraveled. And then also the thing that really unraveled, that it unraveled on personal levels. It unraveled in terms of process because all of a sudden the way it works in the music business is you record all the music. It takes two years. And then once you've recorded the music, then you do the imaging and then you do the performance. And so in the past, it was that 
we were making all these creative choices that were informing the music and built around it. So there was a kind of like a, a really beautiful kind of simultaneity of the development of all the parts. And so they were very sophisticated and very integrated. And then when it came time to work with a major label, it was like, oh, this is why I was always complaining. I was like, why aren't people more sophisticated? Why aren't people doing cooler stuff? Why aren't things more advanced? Why aren't things more interesting? And I realize now it's not because of the lack of interest or the lack of intelligence. It's because the system itself is set up in such a way where you have to deliver a hit, basically, and then based on the hit potential of that song, then they can establish what the budget will be. And then once you know the budget, then they can start to decide who the team is going to be and who's going to do the photo shoot, who's the stylist, and da-da-da. But ultimately, it's kind of a system built to fail because when you're on a major label, you have to start paying commercial rates. And then all of a sudden, it's like you can only afford one photo shoot and it's going to cost $50,000 and you're going to get like four pictures out of it and you only had two weeks to prepare for it. In 2007, you returned to your theatrical roots and joined the Experimental New York Performance Ensemble, the Worcester Group, as you started to talk about earlier. Tell us about that decision and was that a response to what was going on with the big labels that you were just describing? Yeah, basically there was, let's see, there was a kind of an implosion that happened after the release of Odyssey. And if I had known now what I know then, I would have done things very differently, which, you know, like one of the things I really messed up on is that I was really committed to New York and working in New York. And that really felt like that's where my performance community was. Basically, I feel like I alienated Capitol Records because I stayed in New York and I didn't come to L.A. And there is a lot of regional pride or there was within record labels and a lot of competition. So it's like I should have done all my launch and everything should have been built out of Los Angeles because that was our home base. Instead, I went to Europe because I knew that's where our audience was. Basically, they canceled tour support. The album kind of never went anywhere. And then I felt like I had just gotten lost in this huge behemoth battle of corporations and big galleries. It was like a mess. And I didn't know how I had started with such ambition and such optimism And I had worked consistently and as hard as I possibly could. And the entire sort of experiment of art and entertainment just imploded and crashed. And so when that happened, I just retreated. And I was like, I'm stepping away. And I had always wanted to work with the Wooster Group. And basically, once I finished, I did like kind of a final performance around Halloween was that 2007? I guess it was. And I went into rehearsals with the Wooster Group, I think it was like on November 2nd, 2007, Mm -hmm. and then started working on the production of Hamlet. And it was amazing. You know, it was like, finally, I was back in a community with intelligent people that were open to very idiosyncratic and personal process And I kind of feel like I was able to heal and return to a community that I wanted to be a part of. 
who was there at the time? Who were you really kind of excited about working with within the group? Well, I mean, it's a great, amazing family. I mean, Liz LeCompte is incredible, very difficult, very challenging, but also very supportive. And I don't know how to describe it. I'm not a Shakespearean actor. And so when we went in for rehearsals, and it's also a very difficult layered technique where you have an audio input in your ear. And what we were doing at the time was we were recreating a performance by Richard Burton on Broadway in 1968. So I had to not just memorize Shakespeare, but I had to memorize someone else's performance and their gestures. So physical, verbal, and on top of that, we also had to memorize the camera movements. So however the camera was shooting that actor, if it was a close-up, you went downstage. If it was a wide shot, you had to back up. The camera slid right, slid left. You had to slide right, you had to slide left. All the furniture was on wheels. So if you weren't in the scene, you were moving the furniture to match the camera movement. Scott Shepard had gone through and recut the entire film because they had taken the text out of meter and he put it back into meter. So if there was supposed to be a pause, he would insert a pause from another moment in the scene, which would in fact put another gesture in because it would be a glitch, which you had to mimic. So it was a very complicated, technical, but beautiful aesthetic because it really heightened the rhythm, the musicality, and a kind of a new sort of emotional quality to Shakespeare, which is really hard to reinvent Shakespeare and still maintain kind of the essence of it. Mm -hmm. And I worked on that show for, I think it was in repertory, and I think I performed it for eight or nine years. But it was interesting because when I went for rehearsals, I thought for sure I bombed. I was like, I'm never going to get the part. What's interesting about the way Liz cast people is it was really more, I would say, it's about people's personality and kind of framing their personalities. So you're not really an actor. You're really yourself playing the character. I don't know if that makes sense, which really weirdly related to kind of the work that I had been doing because I basically was myself kind of cast enacting my desires it wasn't so much about acting because it's more about like self-actualization in a weird way mm-hmm. through fantasy i sort of want to talk about that because i think with each album and now we're talking about Worcester group it's interesting you essentially create and embody this new character and you do it in like in a very immersive organic way through photography through changing your styling can you just talk more about how you embody this new character which new character Well, I'm thinking, for instance, let's talk about the image you created for Sir, right? To me, that was a very 1970s image. It kind of harked back to this pre-AIDS era of sexual openness. You called it aggressively homosexual. To me, it's interesting (laughs) why, which I love. First of all, two things. How did you basically embody this character? And also, why was that image needed at the time? I'm, I'm curious of time and place for these characters. Yeah, I think it was a really, it's definitely one of the strongest characters I've ever built. It's one that people still want. And I kind of feel like I'm a little bit stuck in that character, which I'm not complaining about. (laughs) But it happened very organically. And it did happen in part because of the Wooster group. So what I was doing is I was working, I was in a production of Cry Trojans, which was a version of Troilus and Cressida. And 
Uh, my part in Troy and Cressida was more, it was very physical. It was weird. It was more like I was more like sculpture than I was an actor or more like a model. And that play that we worked on, the idea was to create the Trojans and the Romans as these mythic tribes. And so I started working out a lot and because it was very body centric. And Scott Shepard and Ari Fliakos were like serving body hard. And so I felt like I had to kind of catch up. So I started training and I got a body. And then as we were rehearsing and we were in rehearsals again for that for like a year or so. And when you go into the garage, you kind of just like you really go into another world. And I was wearing a wig every day. So I'd stopped cutting my hair and you would stop shaving and you kind of stop dressing because you just go into rehearsal every day and put on a costume. So it doesn't really matter. And so you get kind of lost in this world. And as we were working, my hair was growing out. And then at one point, Liz asked for me to shave a mustache and to match another guy in a video. And so then just by chance, I'm also working on this record about trying to update homosexual, contemporary homosexual narratives. And I all of a sudden have like long hair, mustache and a body. And I noticed that like people are really starting to respond to me differently. All of a sudden, I was like, oh, wow, this I kind of accidentally have stumbled upon this archetype um, that is this sort of pre-AIDS. And then simultaneous to that, the drug prep becomes popular. And so I sort of get caught in the middle of gay sex and gay culture having a new renaissance that's very post-HIV. And I'm also making this album. So... I just kind of like stuck with that persona. And then in the midst of all that, I was in a long-term relationship that unravels. So then I'm newly single. And then I kind of like enter the kind of like New York gay scene. And it feels like it's like 1978 again or something. I think also that there was some, I'm born in 1970. So it was like, there was something very formative about going back to that time and sort of reenacting my sexual desires. And it felt like I kind of was able to, because of prep and because of being in New York and because of just where I was and who I was, all of a sudden I kind of got the chance to sort of start over. So it was sort of like a second coming out for me. Well, regarding this album, sir. Michael Stipe not only helped to write some of the songs off this album, but he was also a producer. And your relationship with Michael goes way back to when you were living in Athens, Georgia. Tell us about this. Yes, that's the other kind of crazy thing that happened was that Michael was my first gay lover. He was my first boyfriend when I was 18 and I was a freshman in college. And we're close and we're good friends and we would stay in touch. We never worked together. We never spent as much time together as we did working on this album because typically he was busy or touring or, you know, all over the world. And when I was towards what I thought was the end of Sir, I asked Michael to come in and help me with one song. 
And I had had other singers come in and try to help me with this one track and they couldn't figure it out. It was very difficult and it was not a kind of like a traditional track. And Michael, like immediately, like within 30 minutes, like made the most amazing and incredible thing. So it was the first time I kind of worked with him, been in the studio with him and saw him, saw kind of what an incredible creative he was. And then he was busy. And I think also he was really avoiding music because of ending REM and trying to move on from that. And I think also he's always wanted people to take him more seriously as a visual artist. So he was focusing on that. He didn't want to be associated with music. So he kind of broken up with music, even though he was so talented and so great at it and loves it. And so I kept working. Then he kind of kept coming to the studio every so often to work on that song that we had started. But every time he would come to work on the song that we started, he'd give me notes on the other things that I was working on without him. And it got to the point where it's like he had given me notes and helped influence a major, many of the songs. And so I was like, look, you know, do you want any kind of credit or do you want to participate in a more formal way? And he was like, no, 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 I'm not working in music. And now I'm just a friend, I'm a friend, I don't need any credit. I was like, okay. And then Warren was like, maybe we should ask him to produce the record. And I was like, okay. And so I asked him and he was like, no, absolutely not. I'm not interested. No, I won't do it. I was like, okay. And then about two weeks later, he called and he says, you know what? I've been thinking about it and I want to produce the album. And I was like, okay. Huh. And he said the song that really convinced him to do it was a song called Oh Rio. And I don't know why, for whatever reason, he really connected with that performance. And it really essentially didn't change from when I worked on it to when he stepped in as producer. But then he was like, okay, there's a couple rules. You know, he was like, I have final say on everything. I was like, okay. And you know, I think we determined like what his publishing splits would be. And, you know, he just was like, I have like total control. And I was like, okay, that's fine. You know, like it was a little, it was definitely a challenge at times because I thought I had already written some really great songs. And then basically he came in and I thought the album was pretty much done. I figured he was going to just kind of keep doing the kind of like tailoring and editing and uh, pushing my vocal performances. And instead he came in and he chopped the album in half. He was like, these six songs are in the trash. We're starting over. And he was like, and these six we'll keep. And I was like, okay. So he basically came in and I already been been working on the album for two years. And he threw half of it out. And so, you know, when he came in. Did this mirror your relationship at all that was back when you were 18 and you were with him? Does this have any sort of... (laughs) Did this feel familiar in terms of that dynamic? No, God, no, 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 okay. no. He was 28. I was 18. It was like, it was, this is very different. I'm curious, back to the album. So when he chopped all these songs, did he add new songs back in or was it? More oh, better? yeah. No, then we started writing. Then mm-hmm. we started writing. And I mean, at the time I was like very flexible because I was like, well, my versions are done. They aren't going to cease to exist. They're still intact. It's not going to hurt me to have explored an idea fully and then have basically a master come in and show me how to redo the same idea. So I didn't feel threatened by anything. And I didn't feel I needed to fight or to defend anything. 
And if I really expressed like, or communicated what I was thinking or what I was saying or what something was about, he would support it. And in the end, actually, he became my champion and sort of helped me become a better songwriter because in the past, when I started making music, I had no training and everything was very intuitive. And Warren was really kind of the musical boss. But as time went on and as Warren kind of drifted away in the process, because we used to do everything in the studio together. And then eventually I started writing on my own and then he would kind of step in and edit. And then by the time we got to Sir, basically Michael and I were writing all the songs and Warren would oversee final production on the music. So there was sort of a natural progression as I became a better and better songwriter. and there was a little bit of a power shift where at one point we turned in a written song to Warren and then he literally would kind of just pick and choose the parts that resonated with him. And Michael was like, uh, no, we don't do that anymore. He was like, when we give you a song, you get a song. And if you don't like the song, then the music needs to change, not the lyric and the melody. Hmm. And so that was like a big kind of amazing turning point. And also, Michael really set me free as a singer. A lot of times I felt very, you know, the style was very restrained. And for whatever reason, Warren really didn't like me to be an expressive singer. And I remember very specifically when we were working on the song Cloud and I was recording with Mirway and I started singing a bridge in a higher octave and Warren like flew into the booth and he was like, he can't sing like that. He can't sing like that. He can't sing like that. You know, meanwhile, I sound great. And Mirway was like, just relax. He was like, let him sing. And so Michael really kind of like set me free vocally also because, you know, I think that Warren comes from a background of classical music and he would rehearse endlessly. So he was rehearsing the violin like hour after hour after hour. And Michael was like, look, like singing in, there were times where I would be singing on Odyssey and I would be singing on a loop the same part for hours. And there was one time where I looked up and everybody in the recording booth was asleep. And I was just <laughs> singing continuously. So there was kind of a masochistic and very uh, not always successful recording and performance relationship. Right. So Michael really was like, he really believed in character. He believed in expression. He believed in creating an environment for me to sing that was safe and kind of allowed me to be more emotional and freeing it sounds like and what's so nice is like you named both of these things in your life michael and the 70s 70s yeah i came back and re-informed your work or informed your work in a new way it's it's kind of wonderful i mean and it's also crazy that he was my first boyfriend to be helping me kind of update an album about homosexuality right And it was crazy because I was in the midst of this insane breakup in the middle of the album, too. So he kind of like ripped me out of New York and we went to Georgia and I moved into like a guest house on his property and like recuperated there while we continued to write. Very cool. So as we all know, I mean, in 2019, you and Warren announced the end of Fisher Spooner. Was this a response to kind of this awakening that you had working with Michael? Was this, I'm just curious how this decision came to be. Yeah, it just was like a natural progression. It's hard when you build like such a 
large body of work that's been so successful and had all these iterations. But at a certain point, it just felt like I had outgrown the relationship. And Warren had chosen to focus more on his commercial career. He has a very successful company making television commercials. And it felt like the workload was very unfair. So I was traveling to all the museums. I was doing all the site visits. I was developing all the concepts. I was pulling in all the collaborators. I was writing all the songs. I was doing all the press. I was doing all the tours. And he was delivering instrumentals every so often with five other musicians. So it just felt like unfair Mm -hmm. degree because we were splitting everything 50-50 and I felt like I was doing about 95% of the work. And then it was just like, unfortunately, he kind of, this is a harsh thing to say, but he sort of like uh, made himself irrelevant because he stopped being present. And so I had to build a process without him. And so once I had that process built and in place, that was really like, why am I splitting 50-50? And now dealing with someone's opinion in the 11th hour when I don't have time. So there was that, just like any other big relationship in your life, you just at a certain point, there are certain factors, you grow apart, and you learned everything you need to know from that relationship. Right. Right. You're at a very interesting point in your life. You're about to launch this new project. You've called it an empire, Spooner Hollywood. (laughs) Can you, yeah. can you tell us what Spooner Hollywood is and what we uh, have to look forward to? Yeah, well, it's another one of those, I feel like, happy accidents that happens in your life where, you know, you can plan and you can strategize and you can work hard, but sometimes certain things just happen and it's not anything I would have expected because basically... In the pandemic, I was displaced. I was living in Paris. I was planning to stay in Europe. I was on an artist visa. But when the borders closed, I happened to be out of the country and I was locked out. I went to stay with my family for a period. And then a good friend of mine, Cindy Green, who was in the original Fisher Spooner, invited me to come stay with her in Hollywood. And in this amazing house in the Hollywood Hills built in 1923. So I kind of took refuge here. And as I've been here, all of a sudden, it's been very inspiring and an amazing place to kind of heal and hide. Somehow throughout the pandemic, I've continued to make work remotely with collaborators around the world. I'm working on music with an amazing producer in Cologne named Julian Stetter. We have an amazing mastering engineer in Berlin named Zeno Mikare. I've never said his name out loud. Zeno. (laughs) So I'm still kind of producing music with a European team. And then I've started doing imaging in LA. And it's an amazing, I never really spent time in LA. I would come here for work, but I never really worked on film and photography here. So shot a music video that is just really talk about like a comment and indulging in my entertainment fantasies and also commenting on it. We shot this video for a song called Blood is Blood on it's the same stage. By the way. You showed oh, it to me. Thank it's beautiful. You. Yeah. So anyway, we shot that on the same stage where Britney Spears made You Better Work Bitch. 
which we're preparing to release at the end of June for Pride, which is great because it feels like the Britney relationship, the performance art, like all of a sudden everything kind of came together in a way. And I really love working with musicians in Europe and then doing the imaging in in Hollywood because everyone's really good at that here. And yeah, and so now I've just signed a deal with a new NFT site called TrueZ, which is, it feels like it's an amazing format for me because now I feel like I'm not struggling with like the art world can only deal with prints that are X size and this edition and blah, 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 where I'm dealing with like the music business. that's like, we only want songs that are this length and they have to fit this format. And they have to have this sound. And I'm kind of not dealing with any of the format issues, but I'm able to release the creative and monetize it without any politics between art or entertainment. And it kind of exists in this new sort of neutral, digital, collectible realm. So tell us a little more about that. What does the NFT and and the new artistic outlet represent for you beyond what you just explained? Well, the thing that's cool about it is just that basically because of new technology, you can embed a code in a digital file. And now because that code is unique, that this file that once was interchangeable with a thousand duplicates becomes an asset. And because it becomes an asset, it inherently has value. But what's really cool about it is it doesn't diminish your ability to share that file without a minted code. So it's kind of the best of both worlds where you can have file sharing and everything can be seen and shared and I can send you the video and it doesn't diminish the fact that there will be a minted file that can be collected and can be owned and the value can be resold and the artist can make money off of secondary sales in perpetuity, which is also like an incredible revolution. And so what it does is it means that basically I'm, for the first time in my career, I'm unencumbered by any kind of parameters, which is completely exciting and totally disorienting because if it's a digital file, that's the only parameter I have to stick to. It can be film, it can be photography, it can be written, it can be an hour long, it can be three seconds long, it can be static, it can be motion. So it's this wild moment where I feel like I can think with complete openness about a concept or an idea and I don't have to kind of back into any kind of a format for any other kind of existing cultural or business structure, other than the fact that it's a digital file, period. That's all it has to be. So that, A, is incredible. B, the thing that's really cool about it is that people have been making substantial amounts of money where in the past, I basically, my business has completely atrophied in the past 20 years. When there were resources and there was money coming in through music and film and photography and touring and all these different things, and also in a pandemic where I really lost my business completely, this is this crazy, amazing kind of miracle where I have the potential to make money making whatever I want to make, however I want to make, and release it whenever I want to release it, however I want to release it. It's great. And the, uh, the other thing that's exciting about it is because 
for the first time in my career in the past 20 years, like people are finally actually getting paid for their creative work and they're getting paid very substantially. It feels like there's an opportunity to kind of build a new creative class that has real power and completely independent. And in a way, I'm just now fully understanding what it can be. I don't really know what it's going to be also because it's so speculative. So I can imagine a lot of things, but what the reality will be, I'm not sure. So I have to kind of tread lightly. It does feel a little bit like I am in that similar moment when Napster kind of and the internet exploded and all the creative work that I had done kind of in a smaller community all of a sudden exploded. So it feels like there is this similar thing where all of a sudden, if people are able to monetize digital files for the first time, that it could really change a lot of things for a lot of people. It could change a lot of things for a lot of artists. One of the things that I'm doing that I'm really proud of that's interesting and been super challenging is that we've been dealing with the contracts for the first release coming up on June 15th. and. We're coming out of the pandemic. There haven't been proper production budgets to pay people what they should be paid. And so we came up with the idea of partnering everyone who worked on anything into the royalties of all the NFTs. Kind of because of my experience in working in music and in dealing with publishing and writing songs and understanding how publishing splits are structured, I basically took the idea of songwriting splits and started applying that to digital files. So if I work on a photograph with someone, then we partner in on that. And, and then the percentages are like actually encrypted into the file, which is called a smart contract, so that you can trace and see who owns which part of that file every time it changes hands. And what? I've done that. It's wild. And so it's been, the lawyers have been really confused because basically... We've been writing contracts this week that no one's ever written in the history of entertainment law. And we're literally making them up as we go along. And so everyone's really like, what's the percentage on that? And I'm like, well, I don't, you know, like, so we're all like, I'm talking to filmmakers, I'm talking to musicians, we're all talking and trying to figure out how to structure our relationships and these publishing splits. But the thing that's really cool is the music video you saw, we're going to release that as NFT. And so I've partnered every single person. I mean, there weren't many people on set because it was in the pandemic. So there were like 10 people on set. But those 10 people that were on set, they're all getting a royalty on the video. So they will forever get a percentage off of the sale of that asset in perpetuity, whether it was a hairstylist, the stylist, dancer, drone operator, DP. Typically, you know, these people would get paid like 500 bucks. They sign off. That's it. There's, and that's right. the end of their. That's such a great model for the future of art. And I, and I think hopefully more people will go in this direction. It sounds like you're right at the forefront of this, which is great. Yeah. yeah. So that's what's exciting. Now, I, that's why I was saying an empire is it feels like I'm able to, uh, I, I'm hoping that I'll be able to kind of like elevate the entire creative community around me. And that hopefully this will bring resources and assets to like all these people that typically you're doing this stuff because it's editorial or you want exposure. And basically it's like, typically you're being taken advantage of. So in a weird way, this is, I'm hoping also with the Hollywood theme, 
I've just been thinking so much about the history of Hollywood and where I am in the hills, specifically in 1923. I've been thinking about like the parallels between 1923 and 2021 Mm -hmm. and how these people lived in these kind of European fantasy village. And then they would roll down to the hill, which at the time to these studios, to what was the cutting edge of technology. So they would roll down, they would make these films and basically invented celebrity as we know it. So just like my relationship to celebrity, to entertainment, to creative production, and also kind of, I'm most happiest in a way in rehearsal. And the Hollywood Hills feel like it is a similar kind of like, it's a lifestyle that was part of production. So I feel like there's some kind of continuity between like the artists living in this kind of utopic rehearsal or in these homes or in these hills or at these studios and that there's some connection. There's almost, and I know this is going to sound crazy, some kind of a spiritual connection where the work is a product of the philosophy and a way of like people connecting and collaborating and all these early actors like Buster Keaton and Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford, they all had their own studios. Basically, I'm sort of thinking of Spooner Hollywood is that I'm starting my own digital studio that's independent and using that as an opportunity to try to elevate and give power to a creative class. I love that. And I love what you said earlier about the creative class that has power. We live through this sort of dark side of politics and entertainment yeah. where people who have money have power. That's what we've learned, like period. It doesn't matter what they say or what they do or what their beliefs are. Basically, money, unfortunately, still runs the game. And so I feel like the only way to kind of win or to fight against those powers that be is that the creative class, the thinkers, the philosophers, and the intellectuals need to have access to resources so they can wield as much power as the darker forces. That's great. Like so at the end of this interview, we do this thing called the quick draw. And it's six questions, 60 seconds. First thing that comes to your mind. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> no, Potato salad. <laughs> I like it. Okay, so we'll begin. Um, who are you listening to right now? Roy Sheen Murphy or what, Apex Twin. What are you reading right now? The California Driver's Handbook. <laughs> Who is the most underrated artist? Oh, God. Most underrated artist. That's a really not easy question to answer. I can't even think. I'm like Charles Chippendale. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite place to travel? Oh, God, another absolutely impossible really? thing for me to answer. Oh, God, I have such wanderlust. Are you kidding? That's why <laughs> if this pandemic hadn't happened, I would still be in a thousand different places at the same time. I, I, all right, I'm going to have to give you like top four. It's like Berlin, Rio, Greece, and Madrid. Wow. All-time <laughs> favorite band? I would say the most pivotal one for me was a band called The Flesh Tones which was the first live punk band I saw. Cool. Favorite guilty pleasure? Uh, fashion. 
Nice. Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you very so much. much. Thank you, Casey. I can Art Laws is produced by Alex Zappa and Robin Rosenfeld. Music is by Voidcore. And the episode you just heard was recorded in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Follow us on Instagram at Art Laws Pod. And subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a comment and give us a rating. We'll be back soon with more. Bye. Bye.